In the Perspectrum podcast, we discuss controversial topics. Outside of this context, Michael and I are both working professionals. While doing this show, we are not acting as agents or representatives of our respective institutions. And none of the views that we express reflect the outlooks of our employers. So don't come to my office and throw toilet paper at me. And I don't have an office, but don't come to my cube. And I'm Nathan Seelove. Today we have a great episode. It's going to be a bit more uh, philosophical, which should be really fun. Mm -hmm. Um, But before we get into all that, we have a very important update on a previous asshat of ours. One of our favorite asses that keeps on hatting, Marjorie Taylor Jewish Space Lasers Green, was previously featured on our Ass Hat of the Week because of some comments she made comparing uh, wearing a mask to uh, getting a gold star and being sent to the gas chamber. You know, the yeah. Star of David, which she kept referring to as a, as a gold star. So, mm. interestingly enough, she apparently has had a change of mind because she visited the Holocaust Museum and discovered that apparently... The Holocaust was kind of bad, you know, wasn't a great thing. And that Jesus maybe, Christ. just maybe, comparing the wearing of masks to the systematic killing of millions and millions of people might not be the most apt comparison. So she actually released a statement in which she apologized for it. Um, you know, she said, quote, there are words I have said, remarks that I've made that I know are offensive And for that, I apologize. And she also said that um, there is no comparison to the Holocaust. Like there there shouldn't be any comparison to the Holocaust. So how would you like to be the staffer that was like, hey, (laughs) there's this museum that I really think you should go to. (laughs) Yeah, she doubled down. And then she was like, you know what? Maybe I should look into what the Holocaust is before. And then she goes there. Oh, oh wow! Fuck! People died. Uh, yeah. Oh Jesus. crap, man! I had to be no fair, idea. That is one of the the more impactful museums. If anything can get yeah. through her incredibly thick, toxic skull brain yeah. sludge, it is it is that museum. Yeah. And look, you know, as much as I make fun of her, I do. You know, don't punish the dog that comes home. You know, I, I yeah. I think that she is a very toxic influence in politics, and I will continue to criticize her when it is warranted because it almost is always warranted when she opens her mouth. But Hey, look, how many, how many Republican politicians can you name that have actually apologized for any of the terrible shit that they've said? Yeah. How many asshats can you name that apologize for their asshattery? I think the only one that comes, I think Chuck Todd might've apologized for his Mm -hmm. like comparing Bernie supporters to Brown shirts but that's the only yep. one that comes to mind in terms of apologies for me. Like yep. I, so I, I guess the reason why we're bringing this up is because yes, it is. We, we want to chastise her and tease her for not apparently knowing that the Holocaust was bad, but I mean, it's maybe good she should apologized. go to, yeah, maybe she should go to more museums and then maybe yeah. she'll be a Democrat. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Maybe, Eventually. uh, Maybe if she starts going to a black history museum, she might start realizing that, hey, maybe uh, the Confederate flag, not a great thing. Yeah, maybe she'll go to the Museum of Natural History and be like, you know what, evolution? (laughs) (laughs) So anyway, 
So with that update, we've got a great show lined up tonight. Um, so we'll start off by diving deeper into the G7, the summit that happened last week that we touched on um, in our last episode, but that we're gonna we're gonna go a little bit deeper on on the uh, on on um, the G7 and, and what kind of came out of that summit, um, and then we'll talk about Ilhan Omar and some comments that she made and the incredible Democratic bash, backlash and uh, how that is unwarranted. And then we're going to have a more uh, philosophical-type discussion about uh, theories in social science and you know what they're good for, how they're used, and, and uh, how, how we should think about trying to leverage them. Yeah. But before we get into all of that, Michael, why don't you hit us with the COVID numbers? Because every time you, every time you give us the COVID numbers, it does feel like you are punching us. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. I will hit you with the COVID numbers. So, so far in the world, 178 million people have gotten COVID, which is up from 175 million a week ago, which is about 3 million new cases in a week, um, which is about the same increase that we saw over the prior week. So pretty steady growth there. Um, so far, 3.84 million people have died from COVID, which is up from 3.77 million last week, which is about a 1.9% increase or about 70,000 new deaths. Again, that's about the same increase week over week that we saw last week. So far in the world, 31 doses have been administered for every 100 people, which is up from 29 doses per 100 last week, which is, again, about the same increase in doses per 100 that we saw from the week before, which, as a reminder, is, is uh, a faster uh, rollout of vaccines than we'd seen for the, the couple of months prior. So things are pretty steady on the world stage. Um, in the U.S., 34.4 uh, million people have gotten COVID in total, which is up from 34.3 million last week. So that's just a 0.3% increase in total cases, mm. or about 100,000 new cases this week, which is, again, pretty low. And we're actually seeing some of our lowest uh, daily new case rates that we've seen basically since the first couple weeks of the pandemic. So we're talking like low double-digit case cases per day. Um, so far, 616,000 people have died from COVID, which is up from 613,000 last week. So that's about 3,000 new deaths in a week, or about 428 deaths per day. Um, so far in the U.S., 53% of the population has received a single dose, which is another week of just a 1% increase, up from 52% of the population last week. And... At this point, 44% of the population is fully vaccinated, which is, which is a 2% increase over last week. So a little bit better um, than the week before, but still really lagging where we could be. Like, we have so many more vaccines than we have people to take them at this point. Hmm. You know, I, I've been noticing a bit of a trend here with these COVID hmm. numbers, Michael, like mm -hmm. each week that mm -hmm. you read them. It's yeah. almost as if the higher... That last number that you give, you know, the one mm -hmm. with the, the the vaccines, it's almost like the with higher, the, the higher that number is, yeah. the lower the weekly new case rate is. Mm. Uh -huh. It's almost mm -hmm. as if there's a connection. Yeah. You should go into epidemiology. It would be really <laughs> valuable in that field. <laughs> 
<laughs> I mean, I'm just, I know I'm just discovering this. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm Christopher Columbusing this shit, but, you know. <laughs> <laughs> That's a great term. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> when you discover something for the first time. Yeah, I, I saw a great tweet the other day. It was like Christopher Columbus was an idiot. He was forty four <laughs> when he discovered America. I knew America was real when I was three. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, no. It's 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 when you discover something that like you know millions of people already fucking knew. You know, already, yeah, already <laughs> like the Holocaust. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. She, she, yeah, she done uh, she done Christopher Columbus the Holocaust. Um. So anyway, all of that is to say, if you have not already gotten vaccinated, get vaccinated. Yep. That's it. <laughs> just do it. <laughs> just do it. You That's know, it. just... Uh, yep. Here's here's an interesting stat. COVID deaths uh, rate is 33, 34 times higher than severe reactions to the COVID vaccine. Hmm. You're way, way, way more likely to die from COVID than you are to have any kind of neg- like severe negative reaction to the vaccine. So does that, does that it. like include um, just like the, the fever that most people get when they get the vaccine? I do not think so. I think it's like severe. Okay. Like uh, there's some new studies on like myocarditis and stuff like that. Yeah. 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 Which we should do an update on at some point. Yeah. That's a good idea. Um, well, so I'd say that's fairly decent news. So uh, speaking of things that are, Good news of a slowly making things from bad to not as bad nature. Let's talk about mm-hmm. the G7 summit. Wow. Yeah, that's a that's a really good transition, <laughs> which is exactly what the G7 summit does. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So I figured we would start with some of like the background of like what it is and what they're supposed to do. And then yep. we can talk some about uh, the actual uh, things that they've been priorities that they were focused on for this summit. Yeah. So right off the bat, the G7 summit is a summit by uh, seven of the wealthiest uh, democratic nations in the world. Uh, This includes the United States, Japan, Germany, Britain, France, Italy, and Canada. Uh, This is the first G7 of the newly elected President Joe Biden. And Mm -hmm. the theme that he was trying to sell was the idea that America is back. And... As always, it felt like a lot of media organizations were blowing that up more than it needed to be blown up. (laughs) But it is important to note that in comparison to how things were a year ago, Biden's Biden's presence there was heavily felt by the other leaders. Yeah. Um, the the uh, the lack of Donald Trump was heavily felt by the other leaders, and there were several cases like uh, like um, Emmanuel Macron, the, uh, the the president of France, was basically like, "Oh wow, it's so nice to have a president who's willing to cooperate with us." <laughs> uh, yeah. So it, it's, I would say that it is definitely worth noting the difference between the Biden administration and the Trump administration, but. Again, let's let's try to set the bar a little bit higher. Yeah, exactly. Because like 
we all knew that that was going to be the case, right? Yeah. Like we all knew that yeah. that Biden was going to do a better job yeah. than Trump, and Trump is the low bar, not the high bar. Yeah. We could send a donkey sure. to the G seven, and they would do a better job than Trump. <laughs> yeah, they would be less obstinate for sure. Um, <laughs> yeah, and 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 yeah. and, that's and, the thing, and somehow like, less of an ass. <laughs> yeah, should I go? And like, should I go? <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll we'll both go. We just made donkey donkey jokes. <laughs> um, but you know, obviously, like one of seven and the most powerful of the seven, uh, not really coming to the table to contribute is a real problem because ultimately, like the G seven is all about collaboration. Yeah, like it was established in the seventies totally informally as just a get together of finance ministers of just a few large nations aiming to uh, promote uh, international trade uh, and financial security. And like slowly over time, they added, um, they added Japan and Italy and Canada and throughout the 1980s kind of became this more important, significant yet informal forum um, and then throughout the uh, the 90s, they um, they kind of formalized things. They added Russia. Then they kicked Russia out in 2014 when they annexed Crimea. Um, and but ultimately, at this point, these are the powerhouses of the world economy. As of 2018, the G7 are uh, account for close to 60 percent of global wealth. They account for 46 uh, percent of G of global GDP, and 10% of the world's population. So like, you know, there's a reason that these are the players at the table. Now, one of those reasons is that they are democratically governed. Yeah. Um, because you'll notice that powerhouses like China are not included in this summit. Um, but like they operate at this point in a, in a formal way with no legal authority. And nevertheless, they do have a pretty significant influence over the world's priorities just by the nature of their size and their willingness to coordinate. Yeah. So let's talk about what this particular one focused on. So I'd say one of, one of the most significant headlines from this G7 summit was a commitment to, uh, to distributing a billion doses of COVID-19, of the COVID-19 vaccine mm -hmm. to developing countries. Now, this is huge. It's not enough, but it's huge. Yeah. Because one of the biggest problems that I believe Michael and I have actually talked about uh, on the pod before is that worldwide there is a certain amount of hoarding of doses mm -hmm. from the wealthier countries, which ultimately has created less access for some of the poorer countries. So things have been getting a lot better in the United States because we have a, we have a ton of vaccine doses. But... Developing countries don't really have as much access. You know, they don't have the funds to be able to um, to be able to afford development. And they don't have the funds to be able to afford the purchasing of said vaccines. So, mm. um, part of this, part of the G7 summit, was to distribute a billion vaccines to various developing countries. Now, it's important yeah. to note that this should not necessarily be seen as charity. This is self-interest. No. <laughs> this is our own self-interest. 
We yeah. benefit from the world not having cases of COVID-19. Because mm -hmm. if you'll remember, China, which is technically still considered a developing country. I mean, there's some dispute as to whether or not that's a fair definition to give them. It's mostly because of their political situation. But yeah. China is where COVID-19 originally started. And that spread throughout the world. Yeah. So it is in our best interest to make sure that other countries across the sea do not have COVID-19 because if they do, they can spread it. And if they have it yeah. for a long enough time, variants can develop that make our vaccines less effective. So we want this mm -hmm. to happen. This isn't us doing charity. This isn't us being, you know, a, a Mother Teresa. This is us. <laughs> a bastion of humanity. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. This is us serving our own self-interest. So yeah. this is good. However, it is important to note that Many of these that most most of the vaccines that are developed right now that have been developed right now have been two dose vaccines. So yeah. that means that in order to fully vaccinate people, you would need um, if 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 each one of these were two dose vaccines, then this would only inoculate half a billion people. And mm -hmm. there's more than a half a billion people in the developed yeah. world. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, more is definitely yeah. needed. Exactly. Yeah, and then and the group committed to ending the pandemic in 2022 uh, by vaccinating at least 60% of the world. But, you know, just doing, like, rough math, uh, the world's like 7.5 billion people. Requiring two doses per vaccine to inoculate everyone would be 15 billion vaccines. Yeah. So you do roughly half of that and you're still talking like seven times the yeah. the vaccines that that they're talking about distributing right now yeah. um so like you know we're not really like a billion vaccines is not close to even their stated goal of 60 percent of the world's vaccination through yeah. 2022 yeah um, the uh the director so, general of the yeah. world health organization actually uh commented on this uh and and said quote we welcome the generous announcements about donations of vaccines and thank leaders, but we need more and we need them faster. Yeah. yeah. And so they also are talking about, you know, aiding production of vaccine components. They're talking about supporting additional vaccine um, production and all of these things. And they're going to have to hit the mark on all of that and do even more in order to reach the actual like effective goal of resolving this pandemic um, in the next, what, year and a half. So, so that's one kind of theme that I picked out of, of this year's G7 summit, uh, which I think is emblematic of previous years as well, which is like, we're going to establish big goals. We are going to coordinate. We are going to talk. Um, but the two big questions are, are these goals ambitious enough? And will we end up following through on them? Yeah. And those seem to be recurring themes with this summit with um, and with other like international agreements because it's, it's difficult, right? Like it's, it's difficult to follow through on these things. But doing so is, as usual, fucking critical to the globe. Yeah. Um, one one other thing pandemic related that um, they came in and came out and committed to was to uh, develop frameworks to strengthen global defenses, collective defenses again, uh, uh, for 
um, threats to global health. So that includes coordinating global manufacturing uh, capacity for you know PPE and and vaccines and things. It includes improving early warning systems. Um, as well as supporting science uh, in the mission to shorten the cycle between uh, of, of for developing safe and effective vaccines, treatments, and tests. And the goal is to shorten that cycle from 300 to 100 days, which I think is like, I, I am encouraged by that eye to the future and recognition that of two things. One, there is no nation when it comes to a disease. Yeah. There's no border when it comes to a disease and that vaccines are, be- or that, uh, excuse me, that pandemics and, and new contagions are becoming more common and will continue to become more common as we, you know, continue to encroach on, um, you know, on uh, like, like, uh, uh, uncultivated land as we continue to develop our human population on earth. Like we will come into contact with, and develop new contagions and pandemics will only become more common. And so the only thing we can do is aside from, I don't know, like not encroaching on these habitats and things like that, uh, is to get better at dealing with the consequences of new contagions and pathogens. Yeah. One of the things that I thought was kind of chilling throughout the pandemic were, um, the old clips from scientists being interviewed on various different news uh, news sources in which they basically warned that this was going to happen. Yeah. You know, oh, people, yeah. people like in 2010 saying, hey, sometime within the next 10 years, there's going to be a global pandemic and we're not prepared yeah. for it. Yeah. So, I mean, SARS and MERS were both yeah. failed attempts at the exact same thing by pathogens, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know? And, and there's a reason why we were spending so much time working on an RNA uh t- like RNA based vaccine yeah for a respiratory illness yeah. like we've been working on this vaccine essentially for many years for exactly this yeah event i mean one of the things that people who are anti-vaxxers were often saying is wow this this vaccine was just developed too quickly like it's too quickly how how, how yeah, could we possibly no know that it's safe well, okay, the tailoring towards this vaccine was done in a pretty good amount of time, but they had been developing RNA vaccines. They had been working and experimenting on the concept of RNA vaccines for, you know, as Michael said, for a respiratory virus such as this for years before this. It's not like they started from scratch. Yeah, exactly. So, so I, I think that it's definitely good that they're acknowledging that we need to be better prepared for the next one. But what annoys me is what often happens with in terms of like, I mean, it, it's like with, with airport security, you know, the preparation is always for the last attack, not the, not, not the next attack. Mm, so interesting. So I, yeah, I, so now I, you I have hope to take th- off your shoes, but like, who's going to do a shoe bomb again? Yeah, and it was a, <laughs> it, and it, it didn't even succeed. Like the shoe bombing sure. didn't even succeed. So I guess I guess what I would say is, hopefully this has scared people enough to not only create things and uh, plan for preventing a pandemic like this, but also pandemics that might pandemics for viruses that might be different. 
So, um, I don't know. I, I maybe, maybe that's just, maybe that's just me trying to be a contrarian, but, <laughs> uh, <laughs> but yeah, I mean that, that like, but we should be holding our leaders accountable for yeah. doing that job, which is the right job. Yeah, absolutely. Um, another big theme was climate change. So mm-hmm. this leads to another big question. What are they doing for climate change? <laughs> uh, is it good enough? And is it actually, are they going to actually follow through with it? So one of the biggest things that they talked about was coal, trying to phase out coal-powered generators. So one of the things that I think people often think about when they think of pollution, when they think of pollution that contributes to climate change, is usually our cars. And mm-hmm. our cars do have a massive effect on the environment, don't get me wrong, but what has an even bigger effect is the coal that is burned in power plants that power our house, right? So whenever you turn on a light, that, that light is being powered by coal in a power plant. Well, d- depending on where you are, unless, of course, you are mm-hmm. being powered by, uh, by a different type of power, pan- power plant. So I like this because, you know, it, it's, although it is important that we do look at cars and focus on cars, it does sort of go into a more... Uh, grid-based solution because Mm -hmm. in order to really tackle climate change you can't just tackle cars you have to tackle the entire grid of these countries yeah a lot of because ultimately also like even if you made every car electric if you were still burning coal yeah you would still be deeply deeply in a hole because your electric demand would go way up you'd have to burn way more coal yeah so the goal set forth by the summit is to cut carbon emissions in half by uh, 2030 and to have net zero carbon emissions by 2050. Now, one of the things to be clear about net zero carbon emissions, it doesn't mean no carbon emissions. It means net Mm -hmm. zero carbon emissions, which means that we're putting in the same amount of carbon that is being taken out of the atmosphere. Mm Because, you know, there, there is a certain amount of CO2 in the atmosphere already. You know, it's being absorbed by plants and it's a little less than 1% of our atmosphere is, uh, is made up of, um, actually significantly less than 1% of our atmosphere is made up of, uh, carbon dioxide. So Mm -hmm. there's going to be carbon in our atmosphere. We just need to be putting in less than is being taken out or at least, you know, around the same amount. Yeah. And, and part of that is the conservation and protection of land and oceans and like, you know, forests that uh, pull the CO2 out of the air and make oxygen. So one of the provisions is to uh, protect or conserve at least 30% of lands and oceans by 2030, which is a big commitment. (laughs) So then the other question is, can they actually follow through with any of this? Yeah. The other thing that I thought was an interesting uh, theme of the climate focus um, of the G7 was a focus on developing nations um, because, you know, yeah. there's a big debate about uh, uh, the role of developing nations in solving climate change. Because if you think about it, like like developed nations got the opportunity to cheaply and, and effectively like build their economies around dirty energy and so, you know, 
in a way that like they're getting they got a boost that they're now saying developing countries shouldn't get now to the to the extent that you know all of us should be attempting to resolve climate change like it should be on it should be incumbent upon rich nations to help developing nations um move to you know clean energy production um without you know putting the burden exclusively on them to get past a dirty power phase um while they're still trying to develop their economies yeah. and so that's kind of the focus here so they committed to offering uh developing nations 2.8 billion dollars to help them switch to cleaner uh fuels um in order to you know help end their reliance on coal um they also promised to make good on a pledge which was made in 2009 ah remember that theme of actually fucking following through on some of their pledges um to mobilize a hundred billion dollars per year from public and private sources through 2025 to help developing nations um tackle the impact of climate change in those nations um so again like the question is always whether we can rely on a on a body that you know influences but doesn't make laws to actually be able to follow through on these things and so at least they're recommitting to that pledge and adding some more to help developing nations move to clean energy. Yeah. I guess, I mean, a common theme that we have said several times in the Biden administration is not enough, definitely a start. Yeah. I think that it is important to note that we, we know that the only way that we can possibly tackle climate change is through collective action, not just collective yeah. action within a nation, collective action action across the globe. That's the only mm-hmm. way that we combat climate change. And the fact that you do have the leadership of seven of the wealthiest democracies coming together and actually discussing solutions is, is hopeful. Yeah. You know, it, and the it fact should... that the U.S. is actually in those fucking conversations. Yeah. <laughs> the fact that the <laughs> U.S. Isn't, is no longer run by some dumbass that thinks that climate change isn't a problem. You know, sure. By some dumbass who thinks that windmills cause cancer. Like, mm. that is hopeful. That is good. So, you know, look. Continue to tell them that this is not enough and continue to fight for more. Mm-hmm. But it's also okay to sit back for just a second and think, yes, yeah, this is a start. This is a good thing. Doing this mm. is better than not doing this. Yeah. It's okay. Yeah, and, I, and as we talked about last week, like one of the big accomplishments was their commitment to move to uh, kind of reorganize the international taxation yep. uh, scheme on multinational corporations. That's a huge thing. Yeah. It's a huge thing that that seven of the most powerful wealthy nations on earth agreed to totally change the way our international tax system is set up. Is yeah. it going to happen tomorrow? No. Is it going to happen at all? Maybe. But the fact that they are agreeing, the fact that they've recognized that as a priority and have committed to pushing for it is a big and now it's time for one of our more light-hearted segments, Tips for Good. So, Michael, why do we do Tips for Good every week? Well, Nathan, I'm so glad you asked. Um, because the real reason 
aside from all the other reasons we've ever mentioned, the real reason we do tips for good every week is because I like um, big butts, <laughs> and I cannot lie. You other brothers, like you, Nathan, can't deny that when a girl walks in with an itty-bitty waist and a big, fat, round thing in your face, you get, how do you say, sprung? You know, I have found out that there does seem to be a correlation between mm-hmm. getting sprung and, yeah. you know, a, a girl walking in with an itty-bitty waist. Yep, and, and that is just the face. tip for good. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> there's there's a correlation between the two. Mm. Oh, but also, <laughs> importantly, one gets sprung by making the world a better place. That does and spring me. maybe that's me. the main reason. Yes, that does I get, spring I, I get me. My per- yeah, yeah, my mood gets sprung. I, it gets so sp- sprung. <laughs> <laughs> so, God, Nathan, what does. is our tip for good this week? So our, t- <laughs> so our tip for good this week is don't react until you hear it from the horse's mouth. So here's what I mean by that. There is a large tendency among those of us that are very partisan in our political ideology, which I'm not going to pretend that I'm not. Sure. To whenever you see a headline about somebody that you don't like, something stupid that they said, the immediate reaction is, oh, well, that idiot that horrible human being what the hell and that person's a stupid head so this is a stupid thing they say exactly more more confirmation of my own bias exactly without actually looking up the video or looking up the tweet or looking up the the statement released and actually reading it to understand what did they say and approaching it Mm. with an intellectually honest attitude to the point where you are able to look at it from the point of view of what were they actually trying to say? It is very common, which is actually something that we're going to be discussing in our next segment to Mm -hmm. misinterpret what somebody is saying because it suits your image of that person. Yeah. So a very important example of this actually happened this week for me. So um, this actually happened with uh, Texas representative Louis Gohmert. Now Louis Gohmert is one of the dumbest people in Congress. He is, he is, he's a complete and utter buffoon. He's an asshole. He, like, I wouldn't trust this guy to flush my toilet. You know, I'd be afraid that he would hold the thing down too long and it would overflow and, you know, there'd be, <laughs> there'd be shit water all over the place. Um, mm. However, it is important to give people the benefit of the doubt. So this week I see this headline saying that uh, he was advocating for uh, altering the orbits of the moon and the earth in order to change in order to fight climate change. Now, I will admit when I first saw that headline and I saw that it was Louis Gohmert, I I was kind of just like, yeah, it makes sense. But then I actually <laughs> watched the video. I actually watched the video. And so here's the actual quotation that he said. Because I'm sure that a lot of you have probably heard about this if you if you've been following, um, if you if you follow news really closely, you might have heard about this. So he said, "quote I understand what's been testified to the Forest Service and the BLM Bureau of Land Management. You want very much to work on the issue of climate change. We know there's been a significant solar flare activity 
And so is there anything the National uh, Forest Service or BLM can do to change the course of the moon's orbit or the Earth's orbit around the sun? Obviously, that would have profound effects on our climate. Now, when you actually watch the video, it's pretty clear, it, it was pretty clear, at least to me, that what he was trying to say was the reason why there's climate change is because there's been significant solar flare activity. It's it basically saying it's not human-made, it's because of solar flare activity. And the idea of changing the Earth's orbit was said as a joke. It was basically like, yeah. hey, you guys, you all are saying, um, you know, we need to fight against climate change. I hear that this is what's causing climate change. And the only way that you could fight against solar flares would be to alter the orbit, uh, orbit of the Earth. Mm -hmm. Now, to be clear, the point that he actually is making is a stupid fucking point. He's yeah. still demonstrating <laughs> the fact that he is an idiot. But it seems pretty clear to me that the argument that he's actually making is just he's trying to be satirical. He's like, yeah. you know, oh, so you would. So the only way you could solve this is if you did something that obviously we can't do. And even later, he said, like, I was being sarcastic. And look, that's what I read it as. This is a guy that I hate. This is a guy that I have, I am biased against. And I read it that way. So it is very important, even when it is someone that you don't like, when it is someone that you would love to have a political one-up with, it is very important to read what they actually say, try to understand what the tones are, try to give them the benefit of the doubt as much as possible before you make that judgment. Hear it from the horse's mouth and then judge. And that's tips for good. Okay, so for our next segment, we are talking about Ilhan Omar and a tweet that she put out that got an incredibly strong backlash for no good reason. <laughs> so I want to read the tweet for you, but then I want yeah. to give some context. Because context, I mean, even out of context, I think it's even not that Even out bad. of context, it's super fucking clear. But <laughs> in context, I think it just makes it all the more clear. So here's what she said. Quote, we must have the same level of accountability and justice for all victims of crimes against humanity. We have seen unthinkable atrocities committed by the U.S., Hamas, Israel, Afghanistan, and the Taliban. I asked Secretary Blinken where people are supposed to go for justice. So what's interesting is the only part of that tweet that seems to be circulating is the part where is just the sentence where she says, we have seen unthinkable atrocities committed by the U.S., Hamas, Israel, Afghanistan, and the Taliban. Yeah. And sorry, 280 characters is just not, it's not too long to quote. You can do yeah. the whole thing. <laughs> yeah. So let's talk about the context real quick. So Ilhan Omar is on the House Foreign Affairs Committee. And during a budget hearing, um, Omar asked the Secretary of State, Anthony Blinken, also known as A. Blinken. Hey, Blinken. <laughs> Did you just say A. Blinken? Sorry, <laughs> I... I, I, I Every time we have to quote. Every time. Uh, every time. Yeah, Robin Hood. Um, anyways, first she was talking about the uh, some Trump-era sanctions that had been lifted. Um, yeah. And then she was talking about how um, the United States opposed an international criminal court investigation into war crimes in Afghanistan 
and Palest and Palestine. Yeah. And the sanctions were against prosecutors from the International Criminal Court for investigating U.S. atrocities in Afghanistan. Yeah. So, like, you know, it was those were Trump-era sanctions that Blinken lifted, but the official position of the United States is still against accountability. Yeah. Well, and also, the United States still does not acknowledge the authority of the International Criminal Court, which, what the fuck? I mean... Yeah. <laughs> which, yeah. you know... So, and, and that's, like, to be fair, that's on theme, and we'll talk about it. Yeah. So, <laughs> in response to that, uh, he basically said that the U.S. and Israel are, you know, they can adjudicate all of the above by themselves. They're competent enough to do that. But they haven't. Yeah. That's the problem. Mm -hmm. They haven't. So when Omar tweeted that, she was tweeting a video of her confronting Blinken about this, about the fact that the United States opposes an investigation into war crimes committed in Afghanistan, and, you know, of course, uh, also um, against Palestinians by Israel, she was pointing that out and saying, hey, we need to have accountability. Yeah. We have committed atrocities. And the thing is, we have. Yes. Yeah, it is yeah. an objective statement. So the things that a lot of people were going around saying is Ilhan Omar is saying that we are the same as Hamas or the Taliban. But that's not what she fucking said. Yeah. If you have any sense in whatsoever, the tweet itself. Yeah. Yeah. If you have any sense whatsoever, it's clear that that's not what she's saying. If you mm -hmm. just read the tweet in its entirety, it's clear that's not what she's saying. The only way that you hear that is if you already thought that's what she thinks. Yeah. And I wonder, why is it that you might think that a Muslim woman who wears a hijab on the floor of Congress has warm feelings towards the Taliban. I wonder what could possibly make you think that racism. racism. Is it racism? <laughs> oh, well, it's racism. As always, when it comes to the question of the United States, the answer is racism. This prompted backlash from the right. Of course it prompted yeah. backlash from the right. They, they, you know, they call Joe Biden a communist for saying people shouldn't die because they don't have insurance and then not actually do anything to make sure that people get insurance. They call him a communist for that. Of course, they're going to go after her for um, yeah. for for acknowledging the fact that the United States has committed unthinkable atrocities. And like just just looking at Afghanistan, let's just let's just talk. Let's just focus on, on Afghanistan. Look. Approximately. 35 to 40,000 civilians have died in the Afghanistan war. In just the last five years, just the last five years, 37% of civilians killed by airstrikes were children. That is 785 children in the last five years killed by airstrikes from the United States, with a total of 2,122 civilians killed by airstrikes. That's in the last five years alone. Yeah. All right. Those are war crimes. Yeah. I they mean, are war crimes. Donald Trump literally pardoned soldiers and mercenaries for war crimes. Yeah. And as we've said on the pod before, if you pardon someone, 
that is an acknowledgement that a crime was committed. You were acknowledging mm -hmm. that what was alleged is what happened. Yeah. So we have committed atrocities. And it's so annoying that even Democrats have this idea that if we do it, it's okay. By yeah. definition, it is not a war crime. And what's kind of funny about this is that this ideology, this approach, this goes all the way back to the Nuremberg trials. Hmm. So one of the things that is really interesting about the Nuremberg trials, so a lot of us, when we think about the Nuremberg trials, we think of the famous, like, uh, I was just following orders defense. Yeah. And the Nuremberg, and the, in the Nuremberg trials, that was not seen as a valid defense. But you know what was seen as a valid defense during the Nuremberg trials? Hmm. The Allied powers did it too. If, 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 if a person, if a defendant during the Nuremberg trials was able to prove that the action that they did was also carried out by the ally powers, that was considered a valid defense because when we do it, it's not a war crime. Yeah. It's only a war crime definitionally when they do it. So how could we possibly be war criminals? By definition, we're not. Yeah. And that's the thing. Like, that evasion of accountability, that, that approach that, by definition, the United States is right, is a pretty good reason not to be in the International uh, Criminal Court. Yeah. You can't be held accountable for your actions abroad if you think that your actions abroad are always right, and so you just abstain from a humanitarian uh, like a, a court like that. Yeah, but a group of Democrats in the House released a statement to Nathan's point, saying, quote, equating the United States and Israel to Hamas and the Taliban is as offensive as it is misguided. Ignoring the difference between democracies governed by the rule of law and contemptible organizations that engage in ter terrorism at best discredits one's intended argument and at worst reflects deep-seated prejudice. The United States and Israel are imperfect and like all democracies at times deserve correcting or deserving or... Yeah and are at times deserving of critique, but false equivalencies give co cover to terrorist groups. We urge Congresswoman Omar to clarify her words by placing the United States and Israel in the same category as Hamas and the Taliban. They just completely strawmaned her. They completely strawmaned. They just, all they did was said, was say, you equated an action by Israel and the United States with Hamas and the Taliban, Taliban's actions. And as a result, you equated those nations. And yeah. because of that, you're not only wrong, you're not only harmful, but you are racist as well. Yeah. Well, and she didn't even equate the actions. She just said both of them have committed atrocities. She didn't even say that they have committed equal levels Equally of atrocities. Equally bad atrocities. Yeah, she very, just very said they have both committed atrocities, which yeah. is objectively true. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Like, the, the dictionary definition of the word terrorism, the, the international definition of the word terrorism is a targeted, a, a targeted violence against a civilian population for a political reason. Yeah. If, I mean, yeah. if you can't automatically think of several instances in which the United States has done something that, that doesn't fit that, like, 
I mean, you don't even really have to go that deep. The, the atomic bombing of Nagasaki and Hiroshima mm-hmm. killed hundreds of thousands of civilians. It was targeted at civilians. And it was for a political reason. Mm-hmm. I mean, <laughs> that, by definition, is terrorism. Yeah. Like, you yeah. don't even have to dig that deep. And when you do dig in deep, you realize, wow, we have done, well, the United States government has done some messed up things. I, and, and actually, I, I, I do want to kind of wait, make one clarification. I do think that it is important to try to clarify, when we're talking about issues like this, we should clarify some, we, we should try to clarify that these are actions that are committed by the United States government. Yeah. Not necessarily by individual civilians in the United States, mm-hmm. by the United States government. And often, often, like when the United States, when citizens of the United States hear about these things, they're outraged. Yeah. You know, you think exactly. of like atrocities committed in Vietnam. And, and that I think is one of the main cruxes of the point that we're trying to make in our defense of her statement, which is the fact that there seems to be this idea. And we, we've talked about this before, that if you criticize the actions of a country, mm-hmm. you know, specifically a country's government, that that is necessarily criticizing the actions of citizens within that, th- that are governed by, by that nation. Yeah. But that is not necessarily the case. Sure. So when we say the United States has committed unthinkable atrocities, we are talking specifically about the United States government. And we as civilians, we weren't necessarily the ones that committed that, but but we have a thing called freedom of speech mm-hmm. in which we have the capacity to speak out against our government committing those atrocities. So when Ilhan Omar is trying to bring attention to the fact that the United States does not acknowledge the the, the the validity of the International Criminal Court while committing unthinkable atrocities. She's trying to encourage more civilians to use that First Amendment right to improve the United States, to improve yeah. the United States government. It's not because she hates America. That's an idiotic view. That yeah. is such a stupid view. Trump said similar things. Trump echoed similar sentiments. In fact, during a 2017 interview with Bill O'Reilly, he was confronted with his overt support for Vladimir Putin. And he, and, and he said that, yes, Putin is a killer, but, quote, there are a lot of killers. You think our country's so innocent. He said the exact same thing. Yeah. The exact same thing in comparison to an autocratic country like Russia. And the thing is, like, not only do we have freedom of speech, we have a representative democracy. The point is to have representatives that are willing to speak out against the actions of their government that don't represent the interests and values of their citizenry. Yeah. That is the point. And to Omar's point... She said her she gave the best one sentence response that I have like ever heard. She said, quote, citing an open case against Israel, 
U.S., Hamas, and Taliban in the International Criminal Court is not or isn't comparison or a form of deeply seated prejudice. It's just not at all that. But yeah. but the thing is, ironically, this time, the Democrats said the quiet part out loud. Nancy Pelosi, when criticizing Omar, uh, said that, quote, drawing false equivalencies between democracies like the United States and Israel and groups that engage in terrorism like Hamas and the Taliban foments prejudice and undermines progress towards a future of peace and security for all. Notice, she did not say it was wrong. She said it wasn't helpful. And I totally disagree. Totally uh, well, disagree. Well, actually, well, actually and, and again, she's not even, again, she's not drawing an equivalency. It's still no, a no, straw man yeah. argument. She's totally straw manning. And even then isn't saying that the straw man version of the argument is wrong. She's just saying that it's not convenient. Yeah. One of the most important differences between the United States and the Taliban is that we have the freedom to criticize our actions. We have the freedom of speech and we actually do have power yeah. over our government. We have the power. I mean, I mean, the Taliban isn't even a government. They're just, they're just a group. You know, we actually have the power to affect change in our government without, you know, getting shot for expressing discontent. Yeah. And the point that she was trying to make is we need to use that. And if you don't realize that, you're not trying to realize, you're trying not to realize that. You are actively yeah. trying not to realize that. Yeah. So look, everybody should be coming to her defense on this one. I agree. All right? Look, I consider myself more patriotic than any, than any conservative politician that I've ever seen because I acknowledge that patriotism is not about thinking that you're better than everybody. It's not about thinking that your country, that because of where you're born, because of your blood and soil, that that makes you superior, that that makes you above criticism. Patriotism is about loving your country. And a country is made up of people, not sand. Mm -hmm. All right? Not soil. It's made up of people. So loving your fellow Americans, that is true patriotism. And loving what your country can do is patriotism. But patriotism is not pretending that we're perfect. Patriotism yeah. is wanting us to get better. Is holding yourself to a higher standard. So pretending that the shit that we have done is okay, not speaking out about it, actively trying to get teachers to stop teaching about it, as many of them are trying to do, that is the most unpatriotic thing you can possibly do in a country. Yeah. And ultimately, it makes no sense to go criticize the Taliban if you fail to criticize the country that armed them. And now it's time for one of our favorite segments, Asshat of, of the, the week. week. So, Nathan, who is our asshat this week? Well, Michael, our asshat this week is so-called left-wing commentator, Jimmy Dore. Jimmy Dore, come on wow. down, you... Yeah, from these left-wing commentators straight at you. We're <laughs> calling out one of our, one of our own. Yeah, kind I of mean, I, 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 do not consider, I do not consider this guy one of, one of my own. Like, <laughs> this guy is so fucking toxic. 
Um, so what did anyways, he do to make it on our show? So this week he made it on our show because he, uh, he, he had a little bit of a face plant when he was trying to defend an accusation that when he was working at uh, the Young Turks, which is a uh, progressive uh, YouTube, uh, YouTube commentary network, um, that he sexually harassed a woman named Anna Kasparian, who's the co-host of, uh, of TYT. So, so apparently what happened, or w- what has happened, is this guy has been making a bunch of really dumb, toxic, straw man arguments against tyt saying shit like oh they they're for bombing syria or oh they've they've turned against everything that um progressives stand for they they hate this they hate that they're for bombing they're for war none of which is actually true um so apparently anna kasparian actually actually uh sent him a private message basically saying hey dude you've been harassing the hell out of us like i've been quiet about the fact that you sexually harassed me like, do you want me to start saying shit about it? And basically he, like shut up or else. <laughs> yeah. And so he actually, he actually decided to break the story before, you know, before they could. And he thought he was trying, I think he thought he was trying to get ahead of the story, mm-hmm. but he did this whole segment and I, I, uh, I will post a tweet that has a link to the, to the segment um, on the, on the Patreon in which he basically said oh well this this woman was always wearing uh skirts that were too short you know that were inappropriate for a newsroom and basically and and and, and specifically they were talking about a time in which he actually went so far that he wrote her a a a, a note apologizing hmm. and he was saying in this specific time uh she was wearing this skirt that was so short that I could see her, I could see her underwear when she bent over. And I was just like, hey, nice new skirt. And then the entire room just erupted in laughter, more, more than I thought they would. And, you know, and he thought, yeah, I thought it was, I just thought I was being funny, but it was clear that she was humiliated. It's like, yeah, it's, she was humiliated because you humiliated her. Um, but it was clear that she was humiliated and we were friendly at the time. So I wrote her a note apologizing for it. So that was, that was him thinking that he was getting ahead of the story and telling people, yeah, yeah, no, this is perfectly innocent. Like first off, slut shaming her for what she's wearing. Second off, that isn't an inappropriate comment at work. Yeah. Like this is a workplace. You don't say shit like that. Yeah. I don't understand how that's hard for people to grasp. But then she actually came out and said, yeah, so a lot of those details are just bullshit. A lot of those hmm. details are wrong. So it wasn't actually a group of, um, of like coworkers that had erupted in laughter. It was actually, she was a professor at the time and she was basically giving her students a tour of the, of the studio. Oh my God. And so he undermined her in front of her students and the statement wasn't just like, hey, nice news skirt, according to Anna Kasparian, which I'm more inclined to believe her than Jimmy because he's a pathological liar. The, the, the statement was, hey, you got, hey, nice, sexy legs, basically. Oh, my God. And, and this, this guy, like, look, I, 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 I used to watch TYT a lot. I, I don't really do it uh, as much anymore. I mean, the advocacy that they do is great. They just 
they don't really have the depth that I want out of my new stuff. That's nothing against them. They're, they're perfectly fine most of the time. But uh, back when I watched them a lot more and he was on TYT, I just remember thinking even then, like, man, this guy is so fucking toxic. Mm. Like, I just, I don't want to hear this guy. All he does is shout and just say douchey things about, you know, about people. And look, I criticize corporate Democrats plenty. This guy straight up thinks that, like, everybody that doesn't do things exactly the way he thinks they should do them is a traitor. Hmm. And, and then it, he makes comments about women's legs in the workplace. Yeah. So, look, one of the biggest reasons why I wanted to do this, is, why I wanted to do this segment, it's possible that there are some people in our audience that follow this guy. This guy is a joke. This guy yeah. is, is a, he's a shyster. He's, he's, you know, he's an asshole. He's a hack. Like, and, and he's just, he's just a self-righteous prick. Like this guy, I, I don't know if he's doing this on purpose or if he's actually this dumb. He's, he's dividing the left in ways that we don't need to be divided. And again, mm-hmm. I'm not saying dividing, dividing the left, because like he's he's I'm not saying dividing the left in a way that um, progressives are all are often criticized for. Like I'm not saying dividing the left by saying, hey, Joe Biden is not doing a great job or he's not doing a good enough job. I'm not saying that. I'm saying the actual the the progressive left, he is dividing them on lines that they do not be, need to be divided. He's not a part of a movement. He's just trying he's he's just tr- doing a show for self-aggrandizement. And people on the left need to not be fooled by this guy. So congratulations to Jimmy Dore for being our asshat of the week. So for our last segment tonight, we are going to be talking about the social sciences and the way that different models of uh, various disciplines in social science compete um, to explain as much as they can about the world and the way that us as, um, you know, people that leverage these models of the world can use multiple models to get the best possible understanding to inform what we should do and our understanding of the world. Yeah, absolutely. So as, as an instructor, one of the questions that I often get from students is, uh, which which model is the best model? Like, which mm. theory is the best? What's theory? right? Or what's 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 the right theory? All right. And here's the thing, that's not the right question. Yeah. Now we've talked about several theories on this particular podcast. You know, we talked about the idea of uh, libertarian paternalism. Uh, we talked about, uh, I think a while back, I talked about the elaboration likelihood model. Mm-hmm. Um. The right question. When it comes to learning theories in the social sciences, you know, theories that you learn from this pod or theories that you learn from school, if any of you are in are, are in college or anything, um, or just theories that you learn while you're, you know, surfing through the web and you find a video that discusses some different way of viewing the world. The question you should be asking yourself is, what can I learn from this theory? Mm-hmm. In what way does this theory reflect how the world is. Yeah. So let me let me just give you a very simple example. Let's talk about just the the, the question of 
quantitative research versus qualitative research in social science. Hmm. So if I were to show you a statistic that said, let's, 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 you know, these aren't actual numbers. These are just, you know, these are hypothetical numbers. Say I were to show you an actual statistic that said 90% of Democrats voted for Joe Biden and 10% of Democrats voted for Donald Trump. Now, I think the numbers are somewhere around that. I'm not sure exactly what they are, but let's, let's assume that that's what they are. Now, from a qualitative, from a quantitative perspective, you would see that and say Democrats support Joe Biden over Donald Trump. Mm-hmm. And that's the end of the discussion. And that does give you a significant amount of the picture. That gives you a picture of 90% of Democrats. Yeah. But what the qualitative researcher asks is, why do 10% of Democrats support Donald Trump? So the qualitative researcher would want to look at those smaller cases, those the, the, the case the individual cases of people that identify as Democrats but support Donald Trump and try to understand why. Mm-hmm. Try to understand what are some of the common themes that people that are Democrats that support Trump seem to have, seem to state. Yeah. And this it's is about a, what you're trying to accomplish. Yeah, exactly. If, if you're trying to if you're trying to accomplish, you know, get elected then 90%, maybe that's the right group to focus on. If you're yeah. trying to accomplish, let's keep our coalition and pull people from the right, that 10% might be the most important group to study. Yeah, exactly. You want to, ultimately, both of them help you generate an understanding of the world, but neither one gives you a full picture, which is why they have to work together. Now let's talk about individual theories. All right. Let's talk. For for example, I want to compare and contrast a Marxist critique to a critical race theory critique. Mm-hmm. You know, let's let's specifically talk about the United States. So we've talked a little bit about Marxism uh, as an ideology, but let's let's for a second let's talk about the idea of Marxism as as a critique. In simple terms, Marxism as a critique is just about viewing things through class lens through the Mm. lens of class struggles. Critical race theory, and again, this is is a major oversimplification. Critical race theory is about viewing oppression in terms of race. Looking at the, you know, if we're applying it to the United States, looking at the ways in which the United States, oppression within the United States is formed through racism, is, is created by racism. Now, both of these theories do give you a pretty good chunk of the picture. For example, a Marxist critique might show you that, you know, let, let's, let's, let, I mean, let's just look at, let's look at slavery, for example. A Marxist critique would say that, um, that slavery was about capitalism. It was about mm-hmm. the landed gentry being owned by their capitalist overlords, the plantation owners. They, it, would, it would talk about that as purely a class struggle. And the racism was just a mechanism for how to justify the creation of that black versus white identity. Now, critical race theory would say that it's about the slow construction of race, the construction of what it means to be black versus white. So 
we had to create these different levels in order to justify who had power in society. Now notice, these are very, in, in a lot of ways, there are some overlaps in these two theories. And in a lot of ways, you can hear it and think, well, this leaves out this or this leaves out this. But the important thing yeah. is taken together, they create more of a picture. This is why there's often a problem with people that do focus on the Marxist critique. Um, they do what's referred to as class reductionism. Mm -hmm. which is basically to say to, to to reduce racial tensions, racial structures to just being about class. Now, in a lot of ways, that is a major factor. But class reductionism doesn't necessarily explain the fact that it doesn't necessarily explain implicit bias. It doesn't yeah. necessarily address implicit bias. It doesn't necessarily address that feeling of superiority by people that are in the lower class that are still white. So you can't just study one theory and you can't just say this one theory, when it comes to social sciences, this one theory is correct. You have to acknowledge this gives us some of the picture. Yeah, I think, yeah, I think the, the, the incredibly strong example to me is the one that you touched on kind of last is a, is about like the relationship between racism and inequality yeah and from a critical race theory perspective i mean and and from any analysis the relationship between racism and inequality is clear yeah. like like the wealth of african americans is you know 10 times lower than the average wealth of white americans so it would be ridiculously negligent not to incorporate race into any analysis of, of inequality in the United States. But at the same time, to ignore uh, class struggle in the United States is to ignore the large swath of the population that is um, white and in it, part of like the severely unequal, the severely underserved um, part of the United States population. And if you don't look at these things together, and if you don't look at like the overlap and the interaction of those two groups, then or those two theories, then you probably will miss the fact that there are multiple critical solutions to these problems. If you don't solve racism, then you won't solve the racist drivers of inequality. And if you don't solve class inequality, then you won't solve racism. Yeah. Yeah, it's absolutely. like so 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 taking a one theory and running with it exclusively is going to leave you poorly equipped to yeah. to address the world. Now that doesn't mean that you can't have favorite theories. I certainly have sure. favorite theories. Yeah. You know? There are definitely better theories than yeah. and worse theories. Yeah, this isn't to say <laughs> trickle that down all economics is a bad yeah. theory. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like that isn't to say that some theories aren't better than others. The the point is though, you want to learn them. Like the first step is learning them. The second step is critiquing them. All right. Mm -hmm. Once you learn what the theory is, learn what the theory is arguing, then you can start saying, okay, well, it, it, it might apply in this situation, but it doesn't necessarily apply in this situation, or it only applies in this situation in conjunction with another theory. Yeah. Yeah. I think about it in, in 
philosophical terms all the time. Like I've, I've been thinking about political philosophy for many years now. And, um, you know, at this point I take my approach to, uh, the right actions of government is a very consequentialist view. A consequentialist view is that the, um, rightness or wrongness of an action should be judged based on its actual consequences. And I think that is very much the right way to judge the rightness or wrongness of a government's actions, which is, so that's like a classic case of one, um, philosophical theory of, uh, what is morally good in the political sphere. But a classic critique of consequentialism is that it could justify really terrible things as long as it's not as, as long as it has a net positive benefit. For example, you could make a consequentialist argument that ends up saying that we should, that, that genocide is the right thing for a nation. You could end up saying that, which is clearly and obviously wrong. And so, and so to take that one theory exclusively leaves out some important things. So at the same time, you've got rights theories right of moral of 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 correct moral action by the government so that is that the people have certain rights that are inalienable that you shouldn't violate and the government is not allowed to touch that is a terrible way, exclusive theory of how government should act because it ends up like that is often taken to the conclusion that the government should just do nothing and everybody's rights and freedoms should remain sovereign all the time rather than a combination of the two, which enables a government to act in the best interest of its citizens while respecting individual rights and autonomy, which yeah. is very much the perspective that we advocate for on this show. Yeah. Which I think that right there is one of the biggest, I think that right there is one of the most important points when it comes to shaping your own political ideology. Mm-hmm. Because it's very easy to look at a specific viewpoint a specific policy proposal and then just reject it because it's associated with a specific ideology. This is yeah. one of the mistakes that Republicans often make when talking about say like, like healthcare just because a, you know, a, a, a single payer system could loosely be described as socialism, which I would actually argue because in a single payer system, the hospitals are still private that it, it's that, classifying it as socialism is just objectively wrong, but just mm-hmm. because it could be classified that way necessarily means that it's a bad thing. It's just a dumb way of approaching it. And the reason why I'm saying that one of the biggest reasons why I think it's important to, to, to note that is that, you know, that they don't apply that standard universally because the standard is if the government is involved, that's socialism and therefore bad. Well, how many Republicans do you see arguing against uh, firefighters or police officers mm-hmm. or the military? I mean, there's always going to be exceptions. Now, some theories help us understand specific viewpoints, specific ideas in different ways. So, that doesn't mean that if you use this theory here or this theory there, that you're you're inconsistent, that you're you're morally inconsistent, that you're you know that means that you lack principles. It just means that you're understanding that the world is more complex. You know, in some cases, 
like, like I would say if we're talking about my moral approach to, uh, to like how a person should be, I would view it in more of a Kantian perspective most of the time. Meaning yeah. what's important is duty, you know, is principle. Mm -hmm. All right. You establish what is your principle, what, what are your principles? What are your duties? And you stick to it. And you try to you try to make that as morally consistent as possible. However, sometimes that isn't practical, and all and also that might change when we're talking about a government. Mm -hmm. All right, in terms of a government, sometimes it might be utilitarian. Sometimes it might be a mix of utilitarian versus Kantian. I mean, you know, as Michael talked about, similar to consequentialism, utilitarianism could sometimes be used to justify something like genocide. Mm -hmm. You know, the, the most good for the most amount of people, that could be used to, to justify genocide. So, of course, there has to be a little bit of, of Kantian ideology in there. And, you know, to be perfectly honest, we also want to live a life that's not robotic. So sprinkle some hedonism in there. You know, do things because it's fun, because yeah. it feels good, you know? <laughs> yeah. And and that's the thing. Pretending like adhering to a single theory is the ideal. Pretends that any theory is fully complete. And if you do that, you're misleading yourself and you're going to end up in a in a pretty bad spot. Social sciences aren't like physical sciences. They're not like the hard sciences, all right? The hard sciences, they have theories, but they also have laws. Mm -hmm. Social sciences doesn't, we don't have laws. Except, of course, for the study of law. <laughs> <laughs> but even then, more like theories. <laughs> And so now we'll end our show as we usually do with our highlights. So Nathan, what's your highlight this week? Well, my highlight this week is uh, kind of a preemptive highlight. I'm Same as my highlight. <laughs> I, I, assume, I assume it is. Um, this weekend, Michael and I, along with uh, his twin brother, Taylor, are going to be at the river hanging out with each other. Mm -hmm. Something that, I mean, I, I haven't hung out with Michael in like, you know, in... Over a more year at this year. point, more, more than yeah. a year at this point because of the pandemic. Uh, I haven't hung out with, with Taylor and I probably, I, I'm pretty sure longer than that. And the three yeah. of us haven't gotten together in years. So yeah. I am so excited and about this. We haven't gotten together at the River House. At the River since House. Since like 2013, 2014, something yeah. crazy like that, which is yeah. just ridiculous. So I am so excited about that. Yeah. I, that's my that's my highlight. I don't have anything to add. I'm super psyched. It's gonna be awesome. Can't wait. We're gonna it's go gonna canoeing. Time. Yeah, it's gonna be awesome. Um, so if you don't hear from us next week, it's because we've drowned. No, <laughs> no. Nathan is a very competent canoer, and we will be very studious pupils. Um, and so with that, thank you so much for listening to the Perspectrum, and you'll hear from us again next week.